Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most notable, the most high-profile homicide cases in Maryland are profiled and examined. This season, season one, child murderers are profiled. This week, the murder of eight-year-old Marciano Ringo and the unsolved homicide of Brendan Thomas Michaels are profiled. It was early in 2001 when Malagro White started dating 22-year-old Jamal Abufutio and they broke up shortly after because he was always broke and could never keep a job. But after he got a part-time job at CNS Wholesaler in Aberdeen, Maryland and started going to school to get his CDL trucking license, they got back together and in November of 2002, they became a full-fledged couple with plans to move in together. Malago shared her home in the 5300 block of Leaf Road with her young son and eight-year-old daughter, Marciano Ringo. Jamal, who had an eight-year-old daughter himself, was heavily involved with the kids' lives even though they already had a father who was also active in their lives. Jamal was extremely close to her kids, and they even called him Daddy Mom. It's reported that he was so close to them that they would run to him when they heard him at the front door. He went to the, their school PTA meetings with their mom. He helped take them to school doctor's appointments. He helped the kids with their homework, took her son to football practice, etc., etc. He did all of this even when they had been, even when they had broken up briefly, and he sometimes brought his own daughter over to her house to play with her kids. This dude was even listed as the emergency contact person for her kids at school. He had met her entire family, and everybody got along with him. Nobody had any issues at all whatsoever with him. He did have a weird rape charge on his record, but her whole family was cool with him, except the kid's father. And whenever Jamal spoke to the kid's father, he wouldn't even speak back to him. It was just something about him that he didn't like. Even though Malagro had been separated from her kid's father, the father was still very much active in their lives, and he would show up every day to take his son to daycare and to occasionally visit with his kids. On the evening of December 2nd, 2002, Jamal came over Malagro's house upset. He told her that he had just found out that a good friend of his had just been murdered. Feeling sorry for him, she babied him up in her bedroom while her two kids slept on the mattress on the floor that was next to their bed. That's how close he was to his family. The next morning, December the 3rd, she got up, left for work at her job around 7.10 like she normally did. It would be the last time she would see her daughter alive. When she left, Jamal was still in bed, but her kids were up getting ready for school. Around 7.35 a.m., she called 
called her house to check on her kids, and Jamal told her that Marciano had already left for school, and he was just waiting for the kid's father to show up to pick up the son and to take him to daycare. Five minutes later, around 7.40, the children's father called to say he was out front, waiting to take his son to daycare, and Jamal sent him outside to be with his father. Marciana's father did ask Jamal where was his daughter, and Jamal told him that she had already left for school. The day went on as normal, and nothing out of the ordinary happened until around 11 a.m. Jamal called the kid's mother at her job talking about they needed to talk about switching her son's daycare facility because he wanted her to move into his place so they could be a real family. At 12.43 p.m., he called her again to tell her that he had went to her apartment and locked his own keys in her house by mistake, and he needed to borrow her ATM card to pay for a cab to come to her job to get back to, to get back her house keys to get his keys. He showed up around 2 p.m. wearing new work clothes, left with her keys, and came back in in about an hour to give her her keys back. The whole scenario seemed strange to her, but she wouldn't make the connection until much later. Every mother can feel when something is wrong with her child. Every mother gets a feeling in the pit of her stomach when they can feel something is not right with her child and that something is just wrong. And when Marciana's mother came home from work and saw her answering machine waking to let her know that she had a new message, she never suspected that what she would hear would change her life forever. On the recording, Marciana's school principal was saying that her daughter never showed up for school that day, immediately knowing something was wrong and that something was off. She had a neighbor call 911 while she searched the neighborhood frantically for her daughter. She called Jamal at his CDL school and told him that Marciana was missing. No way, no, he was reported to have said. After a neighbor told her that she had seen with her own eyes Marciana getting into his car that same morning, she called him back and asked him about it. That's when he was like, oh yeah, she did come back to his car to get her, her homework signed by an adult and he just dropped her off at school school, Northwood Elementary, was literally just across the street from Marciana's house. The cops showed up at Marciana's home around 4.45 p.m. at first just to take a missing persons report. They questioned both Marciana's mother and her father, who showed up as soon as he learned that his daughter was missing. The officers wanted to talk to Jamal, too, so they had Marciana's mother call him to get him to come to the house, which he did. When he showed up, police asked him when was the last time he had seen the third grader, and he told them that around 7.30 that morning, she had walked to the school, but about five minutes later, she came back to his car saying she needed her homework signed by an adult. He said he signed her homework and noticed something about a field trip to Fort Discovery that she also needed signed. After signing the homework, he said the eight-year-old got in his car and he literally just drove her to the school across the street and dropped her off by a yellow bus and some other kids and teachers that was around. He said he pulled off without looking or checking to see if she even walked to the school, drove through the alley in the 5200 block of Lock Raven Boulevard, and went to work at his job in Aberdeen, Maryland. 
The detectives and cops weren't trusting anyone, so Marciana's mother, father, and Jamal were all asked to come down to the police station to give formal statements about the last time that each of them had seen Marciana. So around 8 p.m., all three willingly hopped into a police car and went down to the police station for questioning. On the way to the police station, Marciana's parents, as well as the detectives, all noticed that Jamal managed to go to sleep and to even snore on his way to the police station, which was only a 15-minute ride. He was obviously not worried about his girlfriend's daughter being missing or anything. All three were interviewed separately in separate rooms, and he told the missing persons detective the same story that he told them on the phone, that Marciana came to the car to get her homework signed. He signed it. He drove her to the school around 7.35 a.m. and managed to get to his job all the way in Aberdeen, Maryland, 25 minutes later, to punch in at work at exactly 8.05 a.m. While he was telling the detectives his story, a neighbor who had also willingly came to the police station to tell her version of what she saw, she was literally in another room telling them that she saw with her own eyes Marciana getting into his car around 8.05 that same morning and not at 7.30 a.m. It wasn't just her statement that set the detectives off. Something about Jamal's demeanor, his mood, that rape charge on his record, plus some of the things he kept saying, it just didn't add up. It didn't feel right, and the missing persons detectives decided to get homicide detectives involved in on questioning. So again, all three, Marciana's mother, father, and Jamal, were asked to come to the homicide division this time for questioning. That same night, around 11.20 p.m., all three willingly went to the homicide division for questioning by homicide detectives. Again, all three were separated in separate rooms and interviewed. Jamal's interview started at 3.42 a.m., and he was offered a slice of pizza and a soda, which he ate. Again, detectives asked him to tell him what happened the last time he saw Marciana. He said the same story about her coming back to the car to get her homework signed, but this time he added the detail that he hadn't said before. This time he said he carried her book bag out of the car for her, and he handed it to her before she went into school. Then he hopped on Interstate 95 North and made it to Aberdeen and got to work in a matter of 25 minutes. Homicide detectives felt the same way like the missing person detectives did. Those of us who live in Maryland know that unless he grew wings and flew, there's no way you can make it to Aberdeen from Baltimore City in 25 minutes, especially during rush hour traffic during that time of the morning. They kind of knew he was lying, so they just let him keep talking. He told them the story that he left work at about 1 p.m. and drove back to Marciana's house before going to his CDL school to pick up a book that he had left there. He said when he got there, that's when he realized that he had accidentally locked his own house keys inside, and that's when he called Marciana's mom and was able to get his keys and go on to his CDL school. The detectives weren't buying none of this, absolutely none of it. For one thing, they were able to get a copy of his time card, and it showed that he had actually punched out at 1.35. Jamal was like, oh, somebody else, a co-worker, did punch me out at 1.35, at but I myself did punch in at 8.05 a.m. 
the detectives weren't dumb and they weren't buying none of this so at 2 p.m the next day they read him his miranda rights and they offered to give him a polygraph to rule him out as a suspect in marciana's disappearance cooperating fully he agreed to take a polygraph with no problems while they stalled him with the polygraph tests, detectives were able to get a judge's signature for a search warrant to search his car. When they searched his car, inside a hidden compartment in the trunk, they found a 9mm handgun with a clip that held 15 rounds. The next day, they searched the car again more thoroughly, and they found a receipt for a pair of backwood blue jeans that was dated for December the 3rd, 2002. The receipt that was lying the receipt was found lying on the back seat behind the driver's seat. The receipt showed that the jeans were bought at a Walmart in Aberdeen. The detectives and a couple police trainees went to Marciana's apartment and searched her home and the surrounding areas outside of her apartment complex. Behind a dumpster close to Marciana's apartment building, they found a blue Walmart bag that had a pair of blue jeans labels for a pair of new backwood blue jeans and a pair of white gloves. All of the items in the bags were stained with blood. Homicide detectives brought the stuff to the evidence room of the homicide division to show Marciana's mother. When they showed her the bloody items and asked her if she knew who they belonged to, she said they belonged to her boyfriend, Jamal. The homicide detectives marched back into Jamal's interrogation room and demanded that he show them the labels on his jeans that he was wearing right now. The detectives noticed that the jeans looked kind of new for somebody who had supposedly been at work all day. After they asked to see the labels on his jeans, without a word or any reaction at all, Jamal stood up, unbuckled his pants, and showed them that the label said backward jeans, the same as the labels that were in the Walmart bag that they had found. Pissed and not taking any chances, the detectives flat out asked him if they could have the pants that he was wearing. Showing no emotional response, he took his pants off and handed them over to the detectives. As he was doing this, the detectives saw a smear of blood on one of his socks, and they were like, you know what, can I just get the rest of your clothes? He stripped and handed over his clothes with no problem, and they laid all his clothes out on the table to be examined. They gave him an orange jumpsuit and shoe covers while he waited to see what would happen next. At 9.15 p.m. on December the 4th, 2002, after more than 24 hours of questioning, Jamal was given a second Miranda warning, and again he continued answering their questions. Finally, 30 minutes into the intense questioning, he said he wanted a lawyer, and the questioning was over. He wasn't under arrest yet, despite all the stuff they found on him, and they even drove him back to his mother's house around midnight. He was formally arrested shortly after for the gun charge, but he made bail and left town. Two days after Marciana's disappearance, on December the 5th, 2002, a letter addressed to Marciana's mom that was postmarked the day before read, Tell Starks I want $5,000. Put in a bag and put in a men's restroom at Drood Hill Park by 8 p.m. tomorrow, or the girl dies. If she die, let's just say we even. An eye for an eye. Starks was a nickname for Marciana's father. Her mother gave the note to detectives, and they immediately performed DNA tests on the envelope. 
DNA samples were also taken from the bloody jeans and the bloody labels and the bloody gloves that were in the Walmart bag and the clothes that had been that he had stripped out of in the police station. Marciana's DNA was found all on the bloody clothes in the bag, and to make things even worse, Jamal's DNA was found on the flap of the envelope that the letter was mailed in. After Jamal made bail on the gun charge, he dipped and was in no way to be found. On December the 12th, 2002, two boys walking home from school in the wooded area in the intersection of Jopper Farm Road and Haverhill Road in Harper County saw a body that was lying on its side, partially buried in snow, completely frozen. Marciana was still wearing her pink Barbie fur coat, white shirt, blue jeans, and blue and white tennis shoes. After 911 was called and emergency personnel arrived on the scene, it was discovered that the body was indeed the body of eight-year-old Marciana Rico. She had been stabbed, beaten in the head, and her throat was cut with a serrated knife from ear to ear, almost to the point of decapitation. It has been reported by the Baltimore Sun that this little girl did not have a quick and easy death. She had defensive cuts all on her hands and arms, and she died ripping the leaves and debris that was around her body. After Marciano's body was found, the FBI launched a nationwide search for Jamal Abiokuto, and even America's Most Wanted got involved and aired a story on December the 21st, 2002 about Marciana's murder and how Jamal was the prime suspect and was now nowhere to be found. Finally, three days later, on December the 24th, 2002, Christmas Eve, the FBI tracked him to a motel in Birmingham, Alabama, and after a standoff with police that lasted several hours, he was arrested and extradited back to Maryland to await trial for killing this child. He was under a disguise and had been using a fake name. Because of all of the high publicity for this case, he requested a change in venue to have his trial moved from Harper County to Baltimore City, a move that made absolutely no difference to his defense whatsoever. He even chose to have a bench trial instead of taking his case in front of a jury, and in July of 2004, a judge quickly found him guilty of first-degree murder and kidnapping, and the judge had no problem in sentencing Jamal to death, and Jamal was, for, for about two years, Jamal sat on death row, on Maryland's death row. And then two years later, Maryland's highest court, the Court of Appeals, overturned his death sentence because a group of judges basically came to the conclusion that Maryland's death penalty was flawed, outdated, and needed to be abolished. They ordered Jamal to have a new sentencing hearing, and this time, his case would go in front of a jury. His defense attorneys didn't deny the fact that he had brutally killed the girl. They even admitted the brutality of the murder and how Marciano was killed, except this time, their defense was that Jamal was a depressed man who suffered from some sort of personality disorder that made him hear voices. His attorney tried the argument that Jamal's actions were just the side effects of his medication from some mental illness that Jamal or no one else knew that he even had. His lawyers tried their best, saying that this so-called paranoid personality disorder caused him to suffer from extreme jealousy and to believe in magical fantasies and to solve problems in ways that normal people don't. 
they said that they killed the girl because voices in his head told him to because Marciana's death would bring them closer together. And they said that he struggled with he struggled that morning between with waking up and sleeping. And when the voices told him that if he killed the girl, Marciana's mother would be vulnerable to him and she would only rely on him and that would push her father, put Marciana push Marciana's father completely out of the picture, all while improving their their finances. Another psychiatrist testified that Jamal was taking all of this crap to the next level and faking all of this. They said he was faking about the depression, faking about the hearing voices. All of this was just nonsense. During his second sentencing hearing, the details of Marciana's murder were finally made to the public. And the details of how this young child died were so brutal, so monstrous, that a female juror said she couldn't even do it. She told the judge that she couldn't take the photos, she couldn't take the brutality of hearing everything, the details and everything just completely frightened her and she, the judge just dismissed her as a juror. Marciana's mother, who had also been in the courtroom, ran out of the courtroom screaming once she finally heard all of the details of how her ex-boyfriend had murdered her daughter. This time, Jamal was convicted. He received a life sentence without the possibility for parole. He did manage to make a statement at his sentencing. He said, I'm not this type of person. I don't know what happened. I can't explain it. I'm sorry I can't change what happened. It's something I have to live with. Later, to honor Marciana's memory, the street in front of her school was renamed Marciana Rigo Way. What made this a notorious homicide in Maryland was simply the brutality of Marciana's murder. I mean, who cuts a child's throat? Who kicks them in the head? Who pretends that they're a father figure to them and then murders them the same day? It was also brutal because she was found nine days after she was killed. She was found tossed, frozen in snow like she was trash. I felt the mother's pain when this happened. I remember clearly when this case happened. Also, when I first heard about it, I knew immediately that the boyfriend was involved in this. I was appalled by the way he engraved himself onto her family so much that he was close to her extended family, including grandparents on her mother's side. No one had any problems with him. He never showed any signs of being a monster that he was. Um, the, this murder was just devastating all around. It, it kills me when someone blames their actions on depression or uh, basically it seems to me he just suffered from jealousy and insecurity because Marciana's father was still involved in her life and he basically wanted that family unit all to himself. That was a huge level of immaturity, huge level of inconsideration and very selfish on his part. That's not a mental illness. That's just how some people are. Of course, I wanted to get to the truth of why he did what he did. I did write to Mr. Abiyokuto. Of course, he's most likely is not going to respond to my letter. In my letter, I did ask him 
couple questions like did he feel remorse for what he had done um why had he did what he did did he still think about marciana every day you know general questions like that to get into his head to see what type of thoughts he had if anything most child murderers that i write to almost 98 percent of them do not respond to my letters i believe this is something that they just want to put out of their heads don't want to talk about it so i do not expect a response from him if i do trust me you will be the first to know i will make that his response aware to my listeners because even myself am dying to know what really made you decide to cut a eight-year-old's throat I, I can't even imagine what her parents went through what they're possibly still going through when you lose a child that grief lasts forever and especially this was done around about the holiday time I, I can't even imagine what they have been through and the murder of this eight-year-old girl Marciana Ringo will always stand out in Maryland's history as being one of the most notorious child murderers in Maryland's history. This episode's unsolved homicide is the unsolved homicide of Brendan Thomas Michaels. Co-workers at Carroll Community College were worried about their co-worker and friend, 43-year-old Brendan Thomas Michaels. The fitness center coordinator hadn't shown up for work for several days, and that definitely wasn't like him. So after not hearing anything from him for about two days, one of his co-workers got in touch with someone who had access to his third floor apartment in the 1200 block of St. Paul Street. And on Thursday, November 8th, around noon, they headed over to his apartment to finally find out what was going on. That's where they found the fitness instructor dead in his apartment. 911 was called and paramedics declared him dead on the scene. An autopsy later showed that he had been beaten to death and had likely been killed on November 6th, two days earlier, before he was found. There didn't seem to be nothing taken from his apartment, and there was no sign of forced entry anywhere. Two neighbors, two neighbors did report to police that they did hear some banging noises in the building, but they thought nothing of it. The three-story, seven-apartment building usually stayed locked and safe with no issues, and no one saw or heard anything that was unusual or strange. Beloved by so many people, Brendan grew up in Westminster, Maryland, and graduated from Westminster High School. In 1998, he graduated from Carroll Community College with uh, an associate's degree in arts and sciences. He also had a degree from Towson University. The next year, he started working full-time at the college as a fitness instructor, where he stayed for two decades. In 2008, the college hired him on as the coordinator of the college's fitness center, and in 2014, Brendan was certified as a personal trainer after he kept up on his education while teaching fitness classes at the college all at the same time. A very motivated hard worker, Brandon was also a waiter at the Olive Garden Italian restaurant in Westminster and was well known as the diva with the tray. A proud gay man, Brandon was liked by everyone he came in contact with. In 2011, 
Seven years before he was killed, Brendan had won $50,000 off of a Maryland scratch-off ticket and a picture with him holding a giant $50,000 check was posted online. My poor car is on its last leg, he told the media in an interview, and he made plans to get a new car because his old one had 200,000 miles on it. So far, detectives have made no connection to the lottery winnings to Brennan's murder, and they have absolutely no new clues and no new leads. Brendan loved the Orioles baseball games. He loved performing, singing, dancing, Maryland scratch-off tickets, and he loved making other people smile. There is a $2,000 reward offered for any information leading to an arrest and conviction for the murder of murder or murderers responsible for Brandon's death. If you have any information on Michael's murder, please call the Baltimore City Police Department at 410-396-2100 or you can send a text message to his text tip line at 443-902-4824. This man was well-liked, he was a hard worker, he was motivated, he was dedicated to improving the lives of others, he had absolutely no enemies at all. Let's give this family the justice they deserve and get this homicide solved. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Maryland's Most Wanted, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders. Please be sure to tune in next week where another gruesome homicide is examined and profiled on Maryland's most notorious murders. This has been a real life